Hi, everyone. You're listening to In the Open, a podcast by Mental Health America, where we talk all things mental health related. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to In the Open. It's just me today, Teresa, but I have a guest with me, um, Sin Gomez. Hi, everyone. (laughs) Hey, Sin. Do you want to tell our audience um, a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So my name is Sin. I use they, them pronouns. I am an incoming sophomore at UC Berkeley, uh, studying a couple of different things from social welfare to race and law and Spanish. And I am a first-generation student, so <laughs> repping that if anyone else is out here uh, being a first-gen student. I see the hard work y'all are doing, and you're amazing. So I am uh, LGBT, I identify as uh, non-binary and bisexual, and I've worked with Mental Health America in a couple different contexts, uh, most recently in their youth mental health leadership cohort. But I'm also super passionate about everything from immigration law to... Um, LGBT rights, and anything that really has to do with politics and government, I'm here for. And, you know, that's not like what we're going to be talking about today necessarily. But if any of y'all want to reach out with any like conversations around those things, I'm more than happy to have that with y'all too. I love it. I mean, today's topic is being queer and Latino. Yeah. And so we just want to open up by, you know, tell me about your experiences. Like if you had to say this was the beginning of my journey, what would you where would you pinpoint that time and place? Yeah, I think it would definitely start when I was uh, probably around 12 or 13, where I generally started questioning my sexuality first. Uh, gender wasn't even a question back then. I feel like that's like a similar journey for a lot of people. Is it starts out usually like, who am I attracted to? Like, why am I feeling like this? Where do I turn to? Who can I tell? And, you know, for me, being queer and Latina was pretty difficult. I didn't really have any role models in my family. It was very hush-hush and there wasn't necessarily anywhere I could bounce ideas off of or even entertain the idea of being queer with. I feel like for me, it, it definitely started like similar to a lot of people, you know, reaching out to resources. I started with like a simple Google search and really just wanted to see like, am I the only one? Like, what is this that I'm feeling? You know, I didn't really know who who to turn to or how to make that change and really find what the terminology to really pinpoint what I was going through. I was like, can you even be queer and Latina? Like, is that something (laughs) that is like possible? Because um, for a long time, you know, the only media representation that we had for like queer people were through like huge celebrities, oftentimes white and wealthy. So, you know, that's really hard for a lot of other like communities to really see themselves and, and understand that this is something that that can be a part of who they are too. So after Google searching and, you know, finding some like media representation, I started to see, okay, yeah, I, I'm queer. And this is this is a part of who I am. How do I communicate that? That was like kind of the next steps is, is how do I find community? How do I have the people around me right now understand who I am? And I definitely turned to friends first and confided in them and sharing who I was and, you know, got amazing responses all around. So I guess a recommendation I would have is like finding someone that you're you're comfortable with who who already feels like your community and your home. And more often than not, you're going to find community there. And that's probably the best like spot you can find yourself in because it opens up the ability to, to confront everything else that's kind of scary about coming out. So yeah, I think that that's probably like the beginning stages of, of coming out for me, but it's been an ongoing journey since then. 
you know, coming out to family, coming out to coming to college and having to restart that whole coming out process again from scratch, you know, dealing with significant others, families, these are all like the next steps when it comes to coming to terms with who you are and really finding your, your place and definitely going into the, the field that I want to, I'm going to continue having to break down these barriers and, you know, really declare that this is a space for queer people as well. Not only that, but queer brown people. And we weren't most likely not here before, but we're here now. And that's the exciting part of it all. And what kind of makes me hopeful about doing things like this, like with the podcast. Yeah. I appreciate that you started with like saying, like, I even had to look up, can you be queer and Latino, right? Because you're like, you know, an experience that people don't have where you had to wrestle with identity, which we all do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, who am I, you know, is something that we wrestle with at 12 years old. But having a model around to even acknowledge that something exists, mm-hmm. I think is understated. I don't think people understand why for people who identify as trans, for example, why that's an extra thing that's mm-hmm. especially challenging. And then on top of it, you're Latine. Mm-hmm. And that's really interesting. I think that most people would who get to be like cisgender or like who who aren't aware of like the privileges we get from dominant culture mm. like how complex this new beginning is for our, for kids right like our youth when they're struggling with this stuff yeah when when you think about those earliest stages and like wrestling and trying to find models you mentioned turning to people who you trust mm-hmm. and like this is where i feel like mental health really starts to come up too. Yeah, is that true definitely. for you? Like, was that true? Like, this is where you're like, oh, crap. Like, I do have all these big feelings. Yeah, I, I, I think like an important like part that I forgot to mention was that I definitely was like struggling with my mental health at the same time. You know, they're definitely intertwined. And we see that with statistics like all, all the time as someone who ended up being like their high school's GSA president and mental health like NAMI, um, like vice president, I got to see like, not only how mental health was becoming a more prevalent conversation throughout like the years in high school, these last four years of my really seeing how we need to be having these more open conversations, not only that, but it, how it intersects with, you know, the queer community. And to add another like layer on top of that to be brown or Latina specifically, because that's the experience I can speak on. I was definitely struggling for a long time and, you know, with a couple of different things from like disordered eating. And that's something very, very common amongst like trans people is, is this one way of like coping, or, like unhealthily coping with your gender dysphoria is through like disordered eating. And I didn't even realize the connection between those two till like maybe a year ago and how how prevalent it can be and how I wasn't really alone in it. But not only that, depression is something that was really huge a part of my young like adolescent years because I felt like there was no community, because I felt so alone and so scared. And before you start telling that first person, it, everything feels kind of impossible and you don't really know how to start having these conversations. You know, that's a really monumental moment for a lot of people, myself included. And you know, the depression and anxiety that comes before it and that can persist after it is definitely not talked about nearly enough. Yeah. You know, you kind of see it in media and, and writing that that kind of like nervousness beforehand, but the extent and, you know, prevalence and how paralyzing that fear can be is so under underserved when it comes to the conversations that we're having. 
So, you know, not only was I struggling with like dealing with all of these undiagnosed, on top of that, having, you know, struggled with self-harm, you know, there's so much that I felt the need to hide at the time. And I think that when we're talking about mental health, that's probably one of the areas that that needs to have this intersection of conversation because being Latina, there's a lot that's hidden within the culture. Being queer, there's a lot of history that teaches you it's safer to hide than to come out. Yeah. With mental health, it being so stigmatized amongst the queer community, amongst like the brown community, there's so much that you need to, so many barriers you need to break down to start having these conversations. So you know, that was definitely something that I, it is something I still have to have constant conversation about and force myself to be open about because in spaces like this, I have the opportunity to show other kids that this isn't going to be the end all be all and you're going to make it through it. And it's not going to, I'm not going to promise you it's going to get easier because that has not been my experience, but (laughs) you get better at handling it and you have more tools in your toolbox once you start opening yourself up to the idea of being queer and to the idea of, of adequately helping your mental health yeah. and ensuring that your mental wellness is uh, at the forefront and your safety at all times. I, I really love that. I appreciate the dialogue because we, we see it on movies, you know, they mm-hmm. put everything in these like precious little pockets of moments <laughs> that go yeah. horrible or great, but it's like five minutes. Exactly. But all the people I know who came out, came out, in their 20s, which meant that they were struggling quietly for 10 years before they said anything. Mm-hmm. And even among my family, maybe there are parallels between like Asian families and Latino families where any family, just being queer in America and the <laughs> world, you know, it's like I I hear that the uncertainty of how to share that is a weight that we do not talk about nearly enough and the isolation. So I really appreciate that you broached that subject. Um, And it Mm -hmm. feels like we probably could have a whole discussion just on navigating those earliest stages by yourself um, in one experience. So, but I do want to turn to your particular experience with being queer and Latine. So when you think about Latino communities and some of the special challenges or strengths there, like, and your own experiences, what are you, what comes to mind? Yeah, there are definitely a couple of things that come to mind. And I feel like it's important to note too, that like this community, like most uh, minority communities is not a monolith. Like I'm Chicano and Mexican American. So, you know, that's very different than someone who's coming from like a Cuban family or someone who's coming from a Puerto Rican or Venezolano. Like this is all very different. And the experiences and, and, and cultures definitely range. And I would say like when it comes to how I started having these conversations or uh, grappling with being queer and Latina, I use the word Latina too as a, as a part of the conversation because dominant culture has kind of inscribed Latino as being the default. But we come down to like the gender preferences and gender binaries and traditional traditionalism and sexism that underlies a lot of culture to break that down there's also what we've seen in growing prominence with like latinx and the history of how it's meant to support queer communities but at the same time isn't necessarily easily communicated in spanish-speaking environments and how latine and and using that alternative ending with an e as opposed to an o or an a also includes gender non-conforming people in that conversation because, you know, um, Latino has been 
defaulted for men as well as general populations, which has its own issues. And Latina has a very like feminist connotation and it's beautiful and strong and empowering at the same time, leaving uh, so many people out. So kind of the lack of language is a huge part of what it, it means to be queer and Latino because there's a lack of common language. And it's not a lot of the work that we still have to do comes to making it accessible to Spanish speakers because I was fortunate enough to have parents that speak English and I was able to have been able to share my experiences with them in the language that I have because a lot of queer terminology is also uplifted in English speaking contexts. Yeah. You know, I mentioned how media doesn't necessarily represent queer Latina people. And, you know, that was really important to me. And, you know, we've seen shifts in recent years with shows like Love Victor or, you know, um, international TV shows like Scam that have these hard conversations and include communities of color in them. But with that being said, a little stat from like Glad, it found that 19 LGBT characters out of 900 and, or excuse me, 698 total characters were scripted in series by big TV networks, breaking down the representation to 13 gay men, three lesbians, two bisexual women, and one transgender woman. And it's estimated that 21% of the 1.4 million transgender people in the United States are Latinx. LGBTQ people of color are more likely to be raising children, yet the Spanish-speaking language um, TV industry is not reflecting this. This is a sizable population and in the viewership, and we aren't seeing it. It breaks down to impacting mental health, too, of like young people, myself included, because, you know, it's decreasing the likelihood, the comfort level, yeah. um, the shareable knowledge when it comes to expressing like our identities. Once again, we're having the possibility um, more likely to negatively impact one's mental health because to, to not see yourself feels like you don't exist. But when it comes to just like early on and how much I struggled to just grapple with these, these two or three main identities, you know, there's also like things I'm happy to talk about when it comes to like religion as a huge component or traditionalism or you know, the concept of sacrificing a lot for your family when you come to America, because more often than not, families are immigrating here and trying to have a better life for their kids. It's interesting because um, America and I have talked about the immigrant experience a lot because she and I both come from immigrant families and mm -hmm. struggling with our mental health problems and disclosing a mental health problems. It was like, I can't put another burden on, on my family who is barely exactly. holding it together, you know, and I think... A lot of kids, mental health issues or not, or dealing with identity, that is a part of the immigrant experience or even among the poverty experience. Because mm. if you see your parents having two jobs, like trying to hustle to keep the lights on and feed mouths, like, I don't know, we naturally pick up on these things, right? Yeah, way more astute than we're giving credit for. <laughs> <laughs> but... I like that you bring up religion and traditionalism. So yeah. let's expand there because I don't think that we've ever talked about religion or traditionalism. Yeah. So when you think about like religion first, mm -hmm. just what went through your mind and what that, what was that experience like? Yeah. So I think I'm, I'm, I like to approach things when it comes to, we're talking about multiple identities, the intersections between them. So Notably, a lot of Latina families are Catholic, like Roman Catholics. So 
there's such a strong stigma that you have to choose religiosity or coming out and being yourself more often than not. Or if that's not the case, you know, historically, that's what it's felt like. And it may not have been your experience with hopefully a more accepting family, because religion is at the intersection of the cultural identity when it comes to being Latina. We often blur the lines so much that you can't find whether these stigmas are culturally implied and um, that's why you're not being um, accepted as much with open arms or that the faith prevents us from being who we are. And for me, dealing with being queer and, and religious was really hard. And I, around that same timeline where I was trying to grapple with my identity and slowly starting to come out to people, I left the church for a little bit, feeling that I was not worthy of God's love. And the crazy thing is that this messaging that I received around God was not dictated by my home life. You know, my parents had always given me a message that God doesn't make mistakes and you are who you are for a reason. God gave you a, a purpose here and your identity is a component of that. It's to be harnessed for good and for strength, you know, whether it's to em empower yourself and have a better life and really dictate that conversation or help others around you or both. Luckily, that's the message that I received at home. And one I want to relay to anyone listening is that if you feel like you're struggling with your faith and your identity, it's definitely not a mistake. And God doesn't make mistakes. And you can use that, I would hope, to empower you and those around you. And I hope you feel the love from that statement, firstly. I know it was really hard for me to get there, too. That's why I want to make sure other people can hear it, because Although I, re I received that positive message at home, it wasn't my family that was making me feel this way about my relationship with God and my identity, but rather what I saw in, in the media. You know, at this same time, the music video for Take Me to Church was coming out. You know, Same Love, that music video was coming out in that song. And uh, around that, you know, we were also seeing narratives of the barrier gaze trope definitely being in play where we just kept dying or we were, you know, cut out of TV shows or we were solely based on that identity included. There was always some kind of hardship. So we've grown up, like, I feel like this generation seeing that that shift in media. So I definitely was seeing that through media and TV and these storylines and the news that being queer, what meant that you were going to be kicked out from your church, removed you could even be lynched or can like have violence committed against you all in the name of God. Well, and I think that is a lot how a lot of people's experiences have been historically and still are today. And I think that's it's horrible that your parents loving words, which we all are seeking like our parents love and our yeah. their approval, right? Like maybe that's like the pain that you have when you hear someone have like such kind words from their parents. You're like, yeah. oh my God, we all want that. But <laughs> It just really speaks to, I think, the pain, the pain, but also the the, the enormity of acceptance mm -hmm. from community. Yeah, like what your parents said is the truth that we want every single kid to have access to and to internalize and to believe as their truth, especially mm -hmm. when people are in your life and they're telling you things that are non-truths or they're hurtful messages, you know, it's really hard to un undo those words. Yeah, definitely. And I think like that even proves to show like when we're talking about this impact on your mental health, there's so many benefits that can come with having a welcoming environment. And, and to any parents listening, like that's your obligation. Like with having a child, I would hope that 
there's a, a an understanding that a welcoming environment is a prerequisite for it. Um, what, what does a welcoming environment look like? It includes validating your kid's experience. Don't question it. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, if you're trying to comprehend, there's a time and space for that. You know, ask your kid questions with consideration, not belittlement. Be willing to learn on your own or find peer support groups amongst other parents who are struggling. There's so many organizations that are more than willing to open that space up and find spaces as well. Like if we're talking about religion still, you know, if you find out that your church is not welcoming, there's so many Catholic churches that are are now making that space for, for queer people to feel welcome there. Find that congregation for you and your family to still have that strong relationship with God and have that space that doesn't, you know, contribute to that fractioning and between your yourself and your child. I think having that support and just fostering that space is so important for like kids to understand that their parents care. So I feel like that's what a welcoming environment looks like, not only accepting your child, but embracing them. Yeah. And when it comes to like the Spanish speaking church, um, or Latina spaces, there's still a ways to, to go, but we're definitely finding more welcoming spaces. So take a, take a look around and see like if there's change that can be made to better support your kid in their process of coming out. Yeah. I'm so glad that you had that. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll just put the good juju into the universe that more kids will experience a positive welcoming environment. Um, yeah. Sending if- out those good vibes. <laughs> Do you think that more kids experiencing experience a non-welcoming environment or or the opposite? Like where I mean, I think times are moving, right? Like we're hoping that yeah. over time more and more kids are able to come out in a welcoming environment than the alternative cuz I hate stories where people are like, "Well, I was kicked out." And you're like, yeah. "Like if you're 15, like getting kicked out, that's horrible, you know?" Exactly. And I think that that's like a totally valid fear that I had too. Even though my parents had consistent good messaging to me, I was scared that maybe this was the thing that that fractures our family. Maybe this is the thing that that is like the point of no return. Like maybe this is like you have to physically and mentally, financially prepare for that complete independence on on abandonment. So um, I definitely think that that's a scary component. And in terms of like whether or not I feel like the welcoming environment is more likely, for this community in particular, I feel like in my experiences and what I've seen in in, uh, my other queer and Latina friends is that for a long time, it's not even whether or not it's going to be a welcoming or unwelcoming environment, but no environment, complete hush-hush, Es una vergüenza. It's like that's that's a shame. Like I'm mm-hmm. I'm ashamed of you. So we're mm-hmm. just gonna not talk about it altogether. Yeah. And I think that that's definitely still a very prevalent component of it is that that shame and that loss of of community indirectly just by that fact that you can't be your complete self anymore in this space. It is a horribly painful experience for your parents to ask you to be something other than who you are. Yeah. So if you're feeling that way, we're just sitting in this pain with you in this moment, because it is, it's a kind of grief. It's a loss. It's a pain. It's a trauma. Mm -hmm. It's so hard. It's so hard. And some people have to do experience this for long periods of time where their parents cannot come around and just, you know, because maybe they're living in an area of the country where there's even less exposure for them in Mm -hmm. community of models of what it looks like. So I don't know what city your family grew up in. Are you in NorCal? 
We grew up in SoCal, so. SoCal. Yeah. You know, because I think about rural communities where you have, you know, talk about media representation. Like, what if you go out to the community and you're like, oh, at my church or at my street, like there are zero Mm -hmm. (laughs) non-majority models, you know, because I think the more you see these things, I think that can help or whatnot, but. So let, let's just touch on traditionalism because you mentioned that too, and I'm really curious. So when, oh, when, yeah. you, when you brought that up, just like, what does that mean? Yeah, I think that it, when we're shifting the conversation um, towards like having a genderqueer identity or like identifying as trans or some variation of having conversation around gender, we definitely see this traditionalism come in very strong mm. with, you know, elements of toxic masculinity and toxic femininity that don't really leave space for queer people in them. When we're having this conversation around Latino toxic masculinity, it often takes the shape of machismo, that you feel that you have to place this this type of expectation on yourself to be hyper-masculine and really embrace like the, the tough guy, no emotion, provide for your family, don't ask questions, violence is is probably the most prevalent way to cope with these things, these hardships and internal turmoils. As for when we talk about toxic femininity, it definitely comes back to a conversation of religiosity and and modesty. Because for women in the Latina community, there's often, first of all, more often than not, a matriarchy. So you're one, having to be the indirect head of the household, because there's this weird complex where men are more often than not place to be the men of the household, but women are taking charge of a lot of what's happening. So that's an interesting paradox to find yourself within, just within the Latina experience. But when we're talking about having a queer identity at the same time, there's this double standard for women to be hyper-religious and carry that that religious, I I don't want to say burden, but expectation to pass on stories, pass on the practice. And modesty becomes a huge component of it as well, where... um, to be queer is is to be taboo and to be feeling this this way because of your lack of faith. So, you know, it comes back to impacting your mental health as well because this traditionalism confines you to the norms that aren't meant to include you. Mm-hmm. And living a life that consists of code switching or hiding or self-regulating in order to keep with tradition or these binary expectations. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like... Um, how I would see this conversation going when we're talking about traditionalism, because la cultura like doesn't let this happen. Um, and if it does, you know, that's, that's the more often than not, the, the younger people who had these queer people hiding in their lives before understanding the burden or welcoming this new turn of a tide that we're seeing in, in terms of culture and young queer Latina people coming out and having this, this type of, strength and resilience and fight in them that says no this is my space and I'm gonna tell you who I am if you had to summarize like your own wrestling with that space Mm. you've talked about these experiences that are so weighty like anybody in one lifetime could sit with just one of those things but Mm -hmm. this is a special gift that the LGBTQ community get right like you're like everything gets tossed in and you have to wrestle with all of it yeah and then um, and then for people of color you know you've really touched on these major issues so how did you what did that look like yeah I think that for me um when I was really young I really embraced like femininity and I knew that it was never super comfy for me but I felt the obligation to because 
a lot of the young girls that I was hanging out with as like my friend group were also very much so embracing that, that, that Chicana pride and that femininity that's kind of implied more often than not. Your two options are kind of hyper feminine or tomboy and there's no in between. Once I started detracting from that a little bit and really saying like, this isn't me, I definitely found more of like a, a masculine comfort zone and kind of took a step back and was like, whoa, 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 why, why is this so comfy? Why does this feel so much better than where I was before? What I've recently started having to struggle with is this machismo now that I am embracing my identity as like being trans and being more more masculine than anything has been, you know, how do I be masculine but not be machista? And how do I not hurt the women in my life or the other people in my life with this with this masculinity that that does more harm than good ever? How do I have positive masculinity instead of toxic masculinity? And People calling you out is the, the prime way to break it down is someone saying, hey, what you said is wrong or what you said was hurtful. And, you know, I've been at both ends of the spectrum of the toxic masculinity and the toxic femininity and trying to break it down to find just good, genuine identity and, and in relation to the, the f- feminine and masculine binary is definitely not easy mm-hmm. and something I definitely struggle with to this day. And it's probably going to be an ongoing struggle because as a society and within various cultures, we see it and it's so prevalent um, that we can't really escape it until we work through it. Did you talk with friends too? Um, were there books? Was, oh, yeah. it, was it intellectual? Was it, was oh, it God, family? No. <laughs> <laughs> it was so messy. <laughs> and, and intellectual, I mean, like, were there people that you followed, that you read mm. their writings that resonated with you or you're like, where it takes it a little bit out of the feeling space where you're just feeling big feelings, but you're like, oh, wait, there's this writer that like really resonates with me. Yeah, I, I'm, I think um, Gloria Anzaldúa is, is a great person to be reading um, in general. She talks a lot about this reclamation of, of like femininity and how she has embraced also the masculine energies that she holds. And uh, she comes from the experience of being queer Latina and also having this identity of being like indigenous and trying to break down like all the gendered things that have been placed upon her. Mm-hmm. And I think that even though like her experiences weren't exactly the same as mine, they kind of helped me break down through like imagery and language and writing in Spanish and English. And in her book, um, La Frontera or Borderlands, mm-hmm. really has this open conversation that I hadn't seen before. And when it comes to like confiding in those around me, I kind of just had a pronouns journey that you know, can you call me by these? Oh, just kidding. Those don't work. Can we try these? <laughs> Actually, never mind. Those are way worse. And like, <laughs> you know what? This feels comfy right now. And thank you for having the patience to work through this with me has kind of always been the way I've approached it. Just because I don't really know what the hell is going on either. There's no guide for this. And, yeah. you know, we just started breaking down the barriers of being like female, female to male trans or male to female trans. And you know, existing within the binaries. So how do we even start having these common conversations without the binaries in English, let alone in Spanish? Like, how do you how do you start having these? Yeah. So it's definitely not like a clear path and kind of just walking through it and kind of creating that pathway for yourself has been my journey for it. Letting the journey be. Yeah, just kind of got to embrace the the what the hell is going on. The confusion. <laughs> yeah. I, I really love that you talk about 
I want to capture your phrase right, but it was like basically what I was feeling was like that moment of comfort, but also safety is like the vibe that I caught, mm-hmm. right? Like it's like I, I I sense this a little bit with like being an immigrant Asian American where I was mm-hmm. growing up, I suppressed my Vietnamese identity and that was always weird because I'm not white, obviously, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't feel like I'm very Viet, you know, because, uh-huh. like, you know, but when if you can just sit back and be like, well, where does it feel right? Like, what does it feel safe? Like, oh, like this is it feels good. Like it feels comforting. Mm-hmm. It just you're not literally sitting in irritation and suffering when you find mm-hmm. the words. And I hear a lot of that as part of your journey too was like finding identity is finding words. And I think people with mental health experiences who don't identify as queer, the closest thing that I can think of to relate to that experience is like we grew up with a lot of negative self-talk, you know, and it doesn't mm. feel great to call yourself trash or have this negative frame. Like we know that it's like it's comforting, but only because we're like so used to beating ourselves up. It's not really comforting. But mm-hmm. when you come to learn who you are and your identity and you are like, I am not trash. I am. It also feels weird to call yourself wonderful because you don't feel that way. You're either. valuable. Yeah. Like, something. But you find the words that you're like, I am able to feel comfort in this space. And that's mm-hmm. because you're learning to accept your true identity. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so like today I can say that I love that I'm funny. And I don't feel weird about it. I don't feel weird. I feel comfort and excited. And Mm -hmm. to me, those are like, that's a really wonderful space. Yeah, I think I shared a a similar feeling when I was just like coming to terms with the fact that I feel like a lot of Latina families are, um, you know, very representational of the community they come from. Like, I feel that I was fortunate enough to grow up in a space that was dominated by like Mexican Americans or Latina people. But, you know, coming into like the college atmosphere, that's definitely not the case anymore. So now I have to kind of stand my ground and be like, this is who I am Mm. only in the context of being like queer, but having to be like, I'm also strong in my faith. I'm Mm. also Mexican American or Chicano. And I, love that for myself and you can't tell me otherwise and it it shows on my skin and it shows in my character and it shows in my history and it's in my roots and it's in my blood and you can't take that away from me yeah love it what a great way to end yeah (laughs) boom exactly (laughs) if you had final thoughts or words to say you are loved and you are cared for And it might not be someone that's directly in front of you or in your life right now, but Mm -hmm. just out in the world, the grand scheme of things, you are loved and you are cared for. And please value yourself first, especially within the context of these communities. It's really easy to get engulfed in the community itself. Mm -hmm. And it's great to have that support and that love. And if you haven't found it yet, your home is out there looking for you and waiting for you. So, you know, I hope that that brings a little comfort and feels like a warm hug to you too (laughs) yay i love it and if you want to reach out to sin you can email us at podcast at mhanational.org and we will make sure to get any contacts over to sin where you can respond of course yes (laughs) always Thank you so much for being here today and for telling your story. Yeah, thank you. To our audience, keep on fighting in the open. Yep, see you guys. Bye. Bye.